You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Are you back home and settled, Matt, after your uh, your weekend? Yep. Yep. Got home uh, Monday. I recognize that wall. There it is. There's the elephant. <laughs> Well, something you don't know, Bracken, is that my uh, one of my athletes, uh, Diane Miller, just spent the weekend with Matt Fitzgerald out mm-hmm. at uh, the Endeavor Run Camp out of, I think you guys were out of Boulder, weren't you? Yep. Yeah. Yes. She gushes about you because she, she's a writer as well. So she says you've been super, super helpful in kind of progressing her along. So that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it's a, fu- it's a cool connection. Um, yeah, she, 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 yeah, it's just fun. Uh, and she gushes about you as well. What the heck, Diane? <laughs> she didn't talk about you much, Bracken. <laughs> it's terrible. What? What? I, I was actually curious because I don't know the in and outs. I know from um, Diane uh, a little bit, but um, we actually didn't talk about this with you the last time we had you on our podcast, which I think was last fall. So we're a little shy of a year since we talked to you. Um, but you run these running camps, which I, apparently are fantastic, and it's called Endeavor Run. What was what was going on this weekend? Yep. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the main organizer is, a uh, Jake Tuber, who's Diane has probably also mentioned, I used to coach him. Um, and, um, it, the, the seed was planted in 2017 when I, I spent the entire summer training with the NAZ elite professional team. Uh, Jake was just lit up by that. And he, he said like, you know, we should come up with a, a camp that sort of like recreates that kind of like pro style training, training camp for, you know, the, uh, every man and every woman runner. Um, and that turned into Endeavor Run. And, uh, you know, Jake is a, he's, has a PhD in psychology. So he brings sort of like uh, his own little twist. Like he, he um, you know, he's thinking on six different levels at once in terms of like how he choreographs the experience so that it can be pretty, a lot can get done uh, in, in three and a half days. Uh, it can be pretty transformative for people. That's the tricky part right there, right? Is, you have to choose your snapshot. We we talked back in the day about, you know, trying to figure out a camp. And if you do everything you want to do, you're looking at like five to seven yep. days. And then that's a huge hurdle to the every man and yep. woman. But if you make it a palatable, I can fit this into my life two and a half to three and a half days, then you've got to really winnow it down yep. to just what you want to get across. Yep. Yeah. And Jake's very good at it. Um, better better than I would be. You know, I, I, I play my role, but uh, he's definitely the brains behind the operation. I know we weren't like planning to talk about this today, but I am kind of curious and on a personal level too, actually, like what does a weekend entail at Endeavor Run Camp? Cause you guys run a number of these throughout the year, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. What, does it, what does it all entail? Yeah. It's, yeah the, in terms of like, you know, if you look like a kind of at a menu of the activities, it would look like a lot of other camps, you know, we, we did a track workout, we did a, a long trail run. Um, there was a, uh, you know, a team, a group strength workout, there are, you know, talks. I, I gave like a book talk um, and there are, you know, other, there's like a nutrition talk and a, a PT is there like to do like one-on-one, you know, injury assessments or, or, or what have you. But the, the, I guess the main thing is different is that the coaches or the staff, we, we do a lot of one-on-one. Uh, so anytime there's not like a structured group activity, 
were circling around, just like actively buttonholing individual athletes and just, you know, kind of getting in deep as quickly as we can about, you know, what, what obstacles are facing, what they're working on, what their goals are, what they need help with. And we just kind of, it, it, it's, it's, you're, it's, it's exhausting because Jake wants us to just be on, like using every, every second uh, we're on the ground with them, but it pays off. Cause like, you know, you get maybe, you get, you know, circle through the whole group three times and you can see an evolution occur. You know, you just build a relationship, build a trust, and you can actually just see this, this kind of arc where you get somewhere with them. Bracken and I were, um, have been talking about having a running public training camp. And when we, when we start talking about it in theory, um, it's easy to get stuck on the bandwidth part, like the oper- like the ability to actually personally connect with every athlete just like you don't want to have too many because you can't connect with everybody on a thorough level but then making sure you have yeah. enough people in the know to to really put on a good camp and that's what sounds like uh like diane had mentioned how good that was like the connection she makes with you guys at that camp so that's got to be a pretty yeah. unique thing i remember going to running camp in high school i don't know bracken if you went to running camp in high school no we were pretty poor <laughs> these were these were like by the hundreds of kids right you sat in a big lecture hall and you got talked to it was great but it wasn't what you're describing anyways right yeah. Last time we chatted, you were long hauling mm-hmm. with COVID. And I believe it was if I run a mile, I'm in bed for a day. Yeah. Like you were pretty rocked at the time. I mean, it's it's more of a timeline question than just how is this camp? But is life energy to the point where three days doesn't destroy you, or are you pretty rocked coming out of something like this? This time I wasn't. Uh the last two I was. Um and so, you know, I I went through my roughest period of the entire thing, um, you know, March, April, May into June, uh, as recently as June, I, I was completely non-functional, just not working at all. Basically, yeah, just basically telling people consider me retired. Um, and, uh, only, only since, you know, maybe early, early mid June, I've started to come around. Um, I think largely thanks to, thanks to Prozac actually, um, I didn't know this, but you know, there's pretty good research uh, on long haulers that uh, a secondary mechanism of these SSRIs is that they're neuro anti-inflammatory. And a lot of that, that, you know, that brain fog you hear so much about is that, um, I mean, you're, you're, my brain feels inflamed a lot of the time mm-hmm. and it just, it just, it's a showstopper. You just can't do anything. So, um, that seems to, uh, be helping It just, you know, in terms of the symptoms above the neck and. Wow. You know, I honestly like, I mean, if you can only have one organ of your body functioning, like <laughs> you want it to be your brain. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that, that is all, but I'm still not running and I, I'm just, I, I'm scared to even try. Cause you know, the last time I, yeah. I like, I jogged three tenths of a mile just to get out of a storm and was just destroyed. Uh, not for a day for weeks afterwards, like three, yeah, really? three tenths of a mile. Yes. <laughs> when you say destroyed, yep. like what would that what would that mean? Like, I would think like crippling fatigue, for example, is that what you're describing or like mental yeah. fatigue or physical fatigue? I'm kind of very curious there. And I asked, sorry to yeah. interject before you answer, but I've probably had, I don't know about you, Bracken, but all of my athletes have had COVID now in the last, it seems like six months. It's just, you know, it's been crazy. And you, your episode with us the first time has been referenced. Like I might be feeling like Matt Fitzgerald, they're three weeks removed and they're not feeling good. Luckily, all of them have come out of it, but you've been referenced a lot and there's a lot of curiosity around it with the endurance athlete in particular. So that's why I ask. So anyway, yep. so well, how would that feel? I'm curious. Yeah. It, it's like it, it, the, the fatigue is uh, so 
quantitatively different from anything we call fatigue that it's almost qualitatively different like that's why you know long haulers are coming up with new names for things like like the the brain fog the neuroinflammation a lot of long haulers are calling brain on fire because that's what it feels like it feels like your your brain is on fire um and same thing with the fatigue it's like we need another word for what we're talking about for me like when it's really bad um it, it's it's almost like I feel poisoned. Like I feel like I, you know I've mm -hmm. never had chemotherapy, but I, I my I call I, my my name for that symptom that I use with my wife is chemotherapy feeling. Just where it feels like there's like a something in my body that does not belong there um, and and is killing me. Um, so it's like yeah, just a fatigue that's just like 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 an illness, like a, just a feeling of just being very unwell or you know poisoned since we talked last i got covid i got it in january i believe and i had three days of what you describe mm -hmm. three days where it was by day three i wanted to get some work done because i hadn't done anything but lay in bed and feel poisoned mm -hmm. and i sat there at the computer and i found myself just looking at it touching my forehead and i would like actually physically shake my head and then try to stare at it. And I'd get like six words into a sentence and I'd stop and I'd like try to stimulate yeah. my face somehow because it was, it, it was poison. Yeah. And that cloud, luckily that cloud lifted for me. I, it became clear early on, I wasn't going to be a long hauler, but that one snapshot in time, I was useless. And it's just outrageous to hear that six, eight, nine months on from the last time we yep. talked. <laughs> still beset by it yeah yeah they call it long covid for a reason <laughs> mm. but you said june something changed and there was prozac so what has that manifested as yeah the the you know the prozac just it's almost like you know taking ibuprofen for a headache like your head your head mm. doesn't feel right you take a pill your head feels a little more right but you know it isn't pain it does come along with um you know there's a lot of uh neuropathy that comes along with it so usually when my i get the brain on fire really bad also like the skin the skin on my whole head kind of just goes numb um and like if i, I can't wear my reading glasses because it just like anything touching my skin it's just um ugh. um and so that's the stuff that's gotten better it doesn't really affect the fatigue or the shortness of, of breath um, it just, you know, kind of seems to reset my brain. And the main thing I've just been doing for the symptoms below the neck is rest. You know, just, it, I, 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 you know, I, I was pretty, as an athlete, I was pretty quick to appreciate the value of, of avoiding physical exertion, but I didn't really appreciate just how much, uh, mental exertion is, uh, you know, taps kind of the same resources. And, and so like, you know, I used to work out two hours a day and then I went to zero and then, okay, what do I do with that time? I know I work more. And I found that like, uh, I was feeling like shit and it was because mental energy is also energy. So, um, so I really sort of just, you know, you know, if you talk, if you know anyone with chronic fatigue syndrome, like the, the number one uh, treatment for it is what they call pacing, which is just, just, just means slowing down. <laughs> Uh, yeah, pretty old school, but, it, but it is, it is helpful. You know, if you just respect your limits, which aren't the same every day. So it's just a matter of like being mindful, um, and, you know, just taking it one day at a time.
That's the uh, frustrating thing about chronic fatigue syndrome is it's it's a label to tell you that you're tired, but not to tell you why, <laughs> right? right? It's like, well, you're really tired all the time. And we'll mm -hmm. put that on there. We'll, we'll validate that you're tired, but maybe we can't exactly tell you cellularly why. I had a bout of um, mono and Epstein-Barr virus in college mm -hmm. um, when I had gotten sick, coincidentally, for a while at the time. And I described it as gasoline running through my veins, I'd tell the doctors, and I was so tired. And it took me years to come out of it, and I eventually did. But, I mean, I would say years and it was like i couldn't even i'd go to the grocery store and forget what the heck i even went there for you know and putting words together in the foggy like you yep. feel like you're walking around in your own dream you're like am i here am i not it's like really yes. bizarre stuff is that what you're kind of talking about like that just weird weirdness yep. yeah that uh i i didn't know there was a name for that symptom it's called derealization but when you just you feel like yeah you feel like you're watching the world from the other side of a partition of some sort yeah, you just you're, you're removed um felt like i was like a camera watching everything happening around me but i wasn't like the person i was like the camera yeah. it was really bizarre yeah. i described that maybe three episodes ago when we talked about the word the longest we'd gone without sleep and i said i had run a my first ultra and couldn't sleep that night because of travel and i slept in a train station but didn't sleep because there was uh, crime going on in the, the area. And the next day I was still awake and I had to go to the grocery store with my wife. So now we're going on 36 hours and I was watching myself talk to someone and looking at myself like, Hey, that's a dumb expression on your face. you got to move your lips when like, but that took an ultra and 36 hours of no sleep to yeah. get there. And I knew in that moment, I just must sleep. <laughs> so I can't imagine living with that because I could barely survive that for a trip to the grocery yeah. store. Yeah. I mean, when it when it when it doesn't end, you have no option. You know, you, you just think like I can't keep living like this. But then you're not actually dying, so you have to keep living like this, and you and you just do. Um, what is so? I want to ask following that up. Then and I know again we didn't preface this. We're going to talk about your book that's coming out, and your ears must have been ringing when you emailed us, by the way. And I'll tell you why. But. Um, what is, so what does working out look like? Like, what does a guy do? Like, do, is there a version of working out right now? Is there a version of like therapeutically moving your body? Um, because God, you were a high level athlete and doing some really impressive things in your, in your forties mm -hmm. and I'm about to be 40. And mm -hmm. so you aspiring to perform well into my forties is high on the priority list. And then having that yanked for at least hopefully temporarily had to be tough. So like, are you finding your fix somehow? What's like therapeutic dose of movement without tipping over? Yeah, between it was, I think uh, uh, around it was like around Halloween. I tried to last year. Um, I decided to try like a total activity fast. You know, so I had it, the first couple of months, few months, I had long COVID. I kept running. You know, I I, I felt terrible. Um, I couldn't do anything intense. I couldn't do anything prolonged. But I was still running. Um, and then I wasn't getting better. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm probably doing too much. Um, so I stopped running and just was walking. And weightlifting has always been a little bit more doable just because it, um, it's an intermittent. Um, uh, it's really the sustained elevations in heart rate that, that messed me up. Um, but I still wasn't getting any better. So, um, you know, I, I started to you know, see and, and hear stories of people who were recovering spontaneously. And the common denominator seemed to be that they were bedridden for a time. And I was always only ever like quasi bedridden. So I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe even the walking and, and lifting is too much. And I had really had nothing to lose at that point. So I went like eight or nine weeks, um, 
zero, you know, just zero activity, like walking to the mailbox to, to get the mail was the most I did each day. And I still didn't get any better. And then of course, you know, being completely sedentary <laughs> is a problem unto itself. So, you know, it, in a way it was sort of good news. I mean, I, I wanted it to work, but given that it didn't, I figured, well, it probably, I won't feel any worse if I resume walking. The trouble is, you know, like, you know, by that point, you know, I was 50 years old, like fully detrained. And when you give up ground, it's really hard to, to get it back. Um, and, and so it, it, you know, it was kind of tough just like starting to walk again. And, and the first time I, I tried to start, um, uh, you know, just very kind of light, uh, you know, resistance work, I, I, I went backwards big time and had to wait and try again. Now I, my, my current routine, which is, doesn't seem to be harming me at all is, uh, like two two mile walks um, a day, like one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and I, I've I've um, I've been strength training again, you know, just very lightly, like a, a fifteen minute thing, um, and I, I and that you know, I've been doing again for like maybe three weeks, and I don't seem to be moving backwards, so that's encouraging. You talk about detrained. Most people throw that word around. You are truly detrained. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You know. I, you know. <laughs> Even though you know what I'm going through like sucks, it's also fascinating. You know, for for someone who the is nerd like, in you in, comes out regardless. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. It it really is, and so you know, it's part of actually how you find a silver lining in it. This is not like Pollyanna stuff. Like it, it really. I mean, what are you going to do? Like it just, I I don't want to just sit here having a pity party all the time. So it's, it's like, well, like this is like a new. It's like you know, visit visiting an exotic country that you'll never go back to because it's kind of awful, but at least you're somewhere exotic and new, you know, and it's just, you'll, you'll always remember it. Uh, Rose yeah. glasses are on Matt. Yeah. But oh, I, 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 uh, can I just shoehorn in one other thing in answer to that question, which I think you'll, you probably neither of you would know experientially that I think is truly fascinating about the detraining piece is, um, you know, even though like, you know, cause you know, I, I had been, um, you know, conditioning myself from age 11 you know like you know I, I played soccer but i also like did i was lifting weights at home and doing wind sprints on my own like i i was like I've, I've been into it since i was 11 like consistently my entire life like that that is a lifetime you know decades of consistent exercise and what what i have found is like you know when i just went back pretty much to zero with with um you know with training is that i still feel like there like I actually can't become as detrained as a lifetime sedentary person. Like I think some of the benefits are actually permanent. I can feel it. Like I, I just don't feel as unhealthy and unfit as, as I think I would at this age if, if I had never done all that stuff, which is kind of cool. You know, I think there's just, there's a bit of it that actually can't be taken away from me that I've discovered. That's interesting. We, we did an episode a few weeks back and the part of it centered around the idea of how prevalent are performance enhancing drugs in age group sports less about at the top but one of the 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 pieces that came up was if you had taken in the past and you stopped are you exempt and it's always that all we have is anecdotal mm-hmm. people saying oh i feel like a shell of myself or I feel like that was out of my system so long ago. It doesn't matter. It's kind of the same conversation about growing up a genetic male and then transitioning. Mm-hmm. Like what is 
and, and you are probably one of the only types of people who can truly speak to how much does prior training yeah. stay in your system after the general populace would say it no longer right. matters. You've passed your expiration yeah. date. Yes. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an end of one type of thing, but mm -hmm. that's what that's what it feels like, you know, from the inside. How would what would be examples of that? Like, how would you be like, you know, what I'm not as deconditioned as I imagined that person over there is. Like, is there any examples where you're like I can do this, or I guess I'm curious there. Yeah, um, a good example would be, um, you know, if I if I'm looking to cross the street and it, it's like sort of like a, a relatively heavily trafficked road, and I have to run across. Um, to get from one side to the other, I feel like a runner when I do it. Like, even though, like, I know I'm completely out of shape and I, I, you know, I can't, if I, you know, climb a flight of stairs, I'm winded at the top, but just the way my body moves, I feel like an athlete uh, still. Well, like that, that would be mm -hmm. one example. Yep. My senior year of high school, we got a new head basketball coach and he had played college basketball back in the day. And now he was probably two decades removed from that. And it was probably 320 pounds. And he walked into the gym on day one and everyone's shooting around and giving him a hard time. Like, you don't play anymore. And he said, okay. And he walked to the corner and he put up a shot and missed. And he's like, oh, that's weird. He unbuttoned his shirt a little bit and then hit like 13 in a <laughs> row or something like that. And probably hadn't touched a ball yeah. in years, but it was that he put in his probably 80,000 yeah. reps of shooting mm -hmm. from that spot. And the muscle memory came back with like one or two warmups. So cardiovascularly, right. endurance-wise training – we, I don't think we know what that component yep. is. We know that skill-based reps come back quickly, right? but endurance, it'll be fascinating if one day, you know, please wake up, right. <laughs> be one of those, you know, those, those, Hey, it's gone. It'd be fascinating to find out what your return to sport looks yeah. like. I actually did that with the acute virus. I mean, you know, it, if I could do it all over again, I would not do this, but you know, cause when, what I, when I had, when I had COVID, um, I was sick for a month and it, I, I had, it was the sickest I'd ever been, the longest I'd ever been sick. And I, you know, I lost, I just hemorrhaged fitness, you know, during that month. Um, but uh, when I was well again, it was that same sort of um, curiosity. I, I wanted to see how quickly I could get it back because, you know, you know, mm -hmm. when you're coaching athletes, you always, you always slow walk the process a little bit just to minimize risk. You know, you know, you, if, if you really had to, you could accelerate it and, and push the envelope, accept a little bit more risk. And just the coach in me thought this will be interesting. Like just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, at that time I was, I, um, I was about to turn 49 and I, or I just turned 49. And, um, and I, you know, I was as unfit as I'd been since I was 11 probably. And, but I was, but I was healthy again. Or so I thought. So I thought. So I I signed up for a, a virtual marathon because this is when shutdown was going on. <laughs> so from yeah from from the day I did my first like test run to see if it, if I could run without having a, a coughing fit, I trained six and a half weeks and ran a, a solo marathon. So I, I compressed uh, marathon training into six and a half weeks, and I, I wasn't just being reckless and putting myself through a meat grinder. I was being smart. I was I was going as fast as I could without destroying myself. So, you know, there were a couple like disastrous runs in there where I, I bailed out and dialed back a little bit, but I really did. You know, I just put all my experience and knowledge and, and applied it just uh, through guinea pigging myself. And that was pretty, that was pretty interesting as well. I definitely learned something from that. Are you saying that since you were 11, your longest streak of not working out was a month? Uh, 
it would be actually 13 days. There were only 13 days in that month when I, I, I was, you know, I, I put up zeros for activity. Yeah. I mean, that alone is a fascinating stat. <laughs> yep. I think that's pretty common though. I mean, people for whom it's just a, a habit and they, uh, you know, never go. But you didn't, in, you didn't hit surgeries or big things to set you back. You were relatively free and clear for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I blew out my knee uh, playing soccer when I was 14, but I, I remember being in the gym. Day, like my mom got me a gym membership because she knew I would go insane. <laughs> you know? uh, so yeah, I, you know, I, I can't think of any gaps that would have been more than a, a few days. Yeah. Wow. What uh, was the result of that marathon? If you don't mind me asking, what was discovered? Yeah, well, um, so my time for the, you know, so my, my fastest marathon is, is two hours and 39 minutes. I ran that one in two hours and 54 minutes, um, which, you know, that's, you know, that's, you know, in six and a half weeks, <laughs> like, it, it, you know, that, that's probably more progress than, than I thought I, I could make in, in that amount of time. Yeah, I'm sure you know the. I'm sure the competitor in you thought it was light years away from your PR, but when you step back now and look, it's more, it's more impressive than maybe you thought at the time. I would assume. You know, I I found it actually deeply satisfying in the moment because for for me it, it was kind of a proof of mastery. Um, just the the fact you know I, I had never started, and again I was running by myself, but it was still a marathon. Um, and I had never started a, a marathon so unsure of what I was capable of. You know, usually, you know, you've gone through the whole process and you have the overall context of your entire athletic history and you know where you are, right? It's like you set a goal and it's, it's going to be pretty close to, to what you're capable of on the day. This time it was kind of a, a big question mark. And uh, initially I thought, you know, I think, you know, if, if, if the stars align, I can squeak under three hours. Um, that was, I, I was, it was kind of a shot in the dark, but, but that was my starting point. So my intention was just to start off at a pace that would give me a chance to break three hours and just see how it went. And I remember running the, so that's like six, 651 per mile. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get you there. But I ran the first mile, I think in 640. So I was a little hot, but you know, after just one mile, I thought, I can do this. I can keep this up. Um, and I ended up averaging 639 per mile for, for the full distance, which was just so cool, you know, because like my body knew it just knew like, like on a conscious level, I had no clue, but my body knew and it told me and I listened and I went with it. Uh, and it was just amazing. So it, it, in fact, it wasn't my slowest. I mean, it wasn't my fastest marathon, but it was, in, a, in some respects, it was my most satisfying uh, because of that that just experience of having, you know, it was, I'd run, you know, maybe 50 marathons by that point, including virtuals. And so just it, all that, you know, all that experience had really added up to something, just give, giving me a level of control I, I wouldn't have imagined possible when I ran my first marathon. Yeah. You still had uh, money in your bank accounts somehow after all yep. of that. Yeah. You didn't bleed yourself dry. I wanted to ask something um, on something you touched on. We are going to get to your new book and all that. I want to get there. But you just said something about this all being fascinating. Like this is so like if you're going to put your rose tinted glasses on and be like, this is fascinating. I'm learning so much 
uh, out of a personal curiosity with the COVID thing, like what are some of the things you've learned? Like if it's about COVID or movement after COVID or any of that stuff, like what are some of the things that you're discovering through this that maybe the common person wouldn't know? Yeah. I mean, I've touched on a couple of them just about, you know, the, you know, the, you know, what detraining looks like, like sort of the, the limits of it. Um, you know, if you've been, you know, active consistently for a lifetime, um, that kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, but, I, you know, I would say a lot of what makes, you know, the experience fascinating is just personal. Um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about myself. I, I've learned, um, you know, I guess, you know, a little bit about kind of, you could say the human condition. You know, I, I was alluding to earlier to um, Bracken that um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Oh, back up. Probably happens sometimes. Yes, it happens. It happens a lot. It's amazing. I've gotten this far into the conversation before it happened. Uh, something Bracken uh, said spawned something. I don't remember what it was. Human condition. Yes, just oh, that's right. You know, like that idea of like when when you're suffering uh, very very intensely, you you can have the thought, um, I can't keep doing this. But then if it doesn't kill you and it doesn't stop, guess what? <laughs> you find that you can keep doing it, um, and, and and so. You know, I've just, because you know, I've, I've been, you know, you know, you hear stories of like, you know, POWs who just go through, you know, months or years of utter hell. And you think like, how do, how do they survive? Um, you know, I'm not comparing what, what I'm going through to that, but I, I, I have like a little bit more of an understanding of how it actually is humanly possible, at least for some people to survive, you know, just prolonged torment. Um, so it's been fascinating on that level, just, you know, just seeing how resilient you know, the human spirit can be, um, and how you can just, you can just, if you have to, you can figure out how to cope. Um, and, you know, just, you know, you know, if, if a little, if a genie had appeared to me at the threshold of, of this journey and told me what was lying ahead, I, I would have said, shoot me now, please just, <laughs> I do not want to have to go through that. But, you know, ha having gone through it up to this point, it, you know, I don't know. Here I am. <laughs> Isn't that like a, quite a metaphor for running when you say that you're miserable and suffering, but somehow you didn't die and you're still here. So what's your option? Well, the option is to push on and keep being miserable and suffering until something else takes its place. And I feel like if that isn't an endurance event in a nutshell at times, I don't know what is. So maybe, maybe, and I'm reaching here, but maybe, you know, all your training and all of your, your daily processes, you know, maybe led you, led you up to maybe be a little more suited than the, the common person. Oh, I, know, I, I'm, soak I'm, it up. I'm, I'm certain of it. Um, but it's also, I wrote a blog post about this a while back. I think it was like one year into long COVID. Uh, I was sort of like taking stock because I very consciously at the beginning of it, I kind of, I sensed what I was in for and I made a conscious choice to apply all of those tools I'd honed as an athlete. Um, and some of them ha have helped, but, but others have not. Um, uh, for example, you know, I, I just, I, I have a very high tolerance for physical discomfort and, and, and that, that high tolerance has, has, um, kept me from seeking help as much as I probably should have in, in my own self-interest. I'm just like, I, I'll, I'll ride it out. I'll just ride this out. Uh, and I think I, I probably would have, you know, made more progress in certain phases if I 
you know, found the discomfort intolerable and picked up the phone uh, to call my doctor. Yeah, I can see that. I would be the same way, I think. Yes. Yeah, many of us would. So then leading me from this, uh, it just got me wondering, okay, so you, you mentioned a man who relies on his brain, right? That's the most important organ to have functioning properly, and I agree with you. Uh, a man whose brain is really um, his job, I would imagine, um, in a sense. Like, how does how did how does that how did that change for you? What does that look like, like uh, on the writing front? And you have a new book out. Um, like, how did how's that process changed, if if at all? I guess. You know, it, it's it's been really tough. You know, um, you know. What, what, I was talking with a colleague about this uh, recently, and I was I was I was telling her that um, I, it, you know, pre-illness, I woke up every day, and, and my first emotion, almost every single day, Monday through Sunday, was excitement. Like I, I, I like you know the way Labrador retrievers wake up is how, <laughs> you know, you know, tail wagging. I just I, I loved Mondays. I just couldn't wait to get after it because you know I had. I had followed my bliss. You know, I, I'm a person who just refuses to do things he doesn't feel like doing and has all the motivation in the world for, you know, the few things he does feel like doing. And so I, I had over time, uh, there were lots of bumps in a row, but I had created the life I wanted and I loved it. Um, and that was, it, it took me a while to appreciate that it had happened. But at some point I realized that I had not felt excitement in months like it it might my, my, my capacity to feel that emotion was gone and that really bled a lot of the energy out of out of my ability to work I, you know i still knew i loved it almost felt like theoretical yes i theoretically i still love writing and, and coaching but i couldn't feel it i couldn't feel the love of these things um i also had i have had you know pretty severe uh, social anxiety so i would just uh, one of the many running jokes that this experience has, has given my wife and myself, I, I would tell her at the beginning of the day, like, oh God, this is a three call day. <laughs> you know, just like, I just, I, I, I loved a day with no calls. Uh, cause it was just like a, just a little bit of, um, a break, uh, from just having to talk to people. So all those things, uh, just made it really tough to work. I, I just, I was thought of myself as, you know, just a, a person of great passions who 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 loved life, who who knew what he loved most in in life, and and feeling that stripped away from me, um, even on the days when I could do it, like when my brain worked well enough to actually sit down and write, I just wasn't feeling it. Um, and funny enough, it it was only like you know, when I was I was in Boulder for a running camp and, and feeling overall better than I had in a while. Uh, I felt this feeling. And I thought, this is excitement. <laughs> I was having a conversation with Jake, the organizer of the, of the camp, and I was getting excited. We were just brainstorming, you know, spitballing, shooting ideas back and forth. And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I remember this feeling. Um, but, yeah, that's that's my kind of long-winded answer to, you know, how the experience has, has affected my work. I'm a pretty big reader in general, and I don't really have genres I stick to. And, and one of the things I was fascinated with is I, I always read Stephen King and I, I enjoyed the book Dreamcatcher. I don't know if you've ever read it. I have not. It's a bit of a departure in some ways from what he's done. And then it came out after the fact that he wrote that after a severe uh, car accident. He was struck by a car. I remember that. Yep. And he was in a lot of pain and he was on medication and it changed his writing a little bit. Mm -hmm. It changed not only what he wanted to write about, but how he wrote about it. 
I can't imagine that didn't creep its way into your writing process in some way. You're right. Uh, that, that's uh, an, that's a very astute observation. Um, you know, there's a, an editor uh, I've worked with uh, for a long time. Her name is, her name is Renee. She used to be with Velo Press, um, uh, a publisher that put out a number of my books, and now she's freelancing. And I've started my own uh, publishing imprint. My new book, On Pace, is the first release from my own publishing company. So I'm both the author and the publisher of this Congratulations. book. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It's a perfect time to embark on having to handle all the details. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, well, no, no, that's that's where Renee comes in. So Renee is sort of like the project uh, manager for, for these books. And so uh, the point is, like, Renee has followed, ha- has been involved as a collaborator in, in my writing for many years now. And she she was you know giving a top edit. Actually, it was this very book, and she said, "Your, your writing is different now. Um, it, there's uh, it's probably not quite the right word, but there's a, a there's kind of a sentimentality that that has crept into um, the, my morbid way of describing it to Renee is like, yeah, I write like a dying man now, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is, I, I do write like an, like an older person who's, who's been through a lot. Um, I think maybe there's just like a little more compassion or something, uh, just the, uh, a little less testosterone or <laughs> so yes, it, it has changed and people have noticed. That's interesting. I know like, um, like my athlete and friend, you know, we're, we're pretty close, Diane. It's like, you know, a writer writes every day. And, and like, if you're really going to, you got to feed the habit, um, you know, and, and set aside time. And obviously when it's your career, it's a whole nother level. So it's like the frequency of that change as far as how, like how often, like I assume at points when you're really rolling with a book, especially in the past, you probably woke up with that excitement, got your cup of coffee, sat down at your happy place and started cranking. I'm assuming <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're a midnight writer. I don't know. But uh, what is what would be the difference between then and now um, in that regard? Yeah, I mean, you know, my pace slowed down. I mean, you know, I have 31 published books. So, you know, like <laughs> pro- productivity is my thing, you know, <laughs> Um you know, uh, I, I pretty much always like to actually be, be working on at least two books at once. Um, cause you know, the hardest part is the first draft, you know, filling those blank pages. And it, it's just such a grind that I, I found that like my overall, um, morale, you know, for the, for the process is greater. If I, I'm also, anytime I'm working on a first draft, I'm also working on something that's much further along and more polished. It's like, I think of like the first draft is uh, my spinach. And the the other project that's further along is my you know chocolate pudding that I that I get to have for for eating eating my spinach. I was thinking like uh, like a threshold run and some two hundreds. That's what I was thinking. Maybe <laughs> yeah. There. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we can get into the parallels between writing and and running for for sure. And so you know, my dad's a writer too, and I, um, he's very much like me. Like he's never had. Uh, a day of writer's block in his life. He has days when it's not flowing as well, you know, when he writes poorly, but, um, so I think I'm just wired the same way where it's just, um, the desire is there, the ideas are there. Um, and, and so, yeah, you can be very, very productive. And, you know, like when you have just kind of, when you're, when, when your normal is like pretty far out there, um, you know, you, you can, you can have, um, you know, 
you know, illness or whatever it is, you know, compromise your ability and still not be normal. Like, <laughs> you know, and so I, you know, I would, I would lament just how unproductive I was. And people were saying, you know, objectively, Matt, you are still cranking shit out here. Uh, give yourself a break. Um, so uh, I don't know, even Prince, Prince slowed down uh, in, <laughs> at some point. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess I would rather write better than more anyway. Uh, when it comes down to it. <laughs> I find it impressive that you got a book out. You talked about, like, I liked the idea of it, of of my passions more than, like, I should like it. I know in theory this is what I enjoy, but anyone who's tried to tell a joke on command knows that when you're not feeling in a funny mood or there's not a circumstance, you can't come up with anything. And writing is, it starts with everyone as a passion project. You talked about your process to becoming an author last time so people can go back to that but it's clearly a passion project did you find yourself forcing words out of you or once you got started were they still there yeah you know as, as i mentioned earlier i i, I i'm yeah, i'm just my natural inclination is to um to follow uh i don't know i just i i, I just tend to have a gut feeling about um what you know just what i want to do and what i don't um so uh, that that continued um uh, so it, there's a reason i wrote this book versus executing on any of my others I, it just seemed more even though you know yeah my the excitement uh, the, the thrill was gone as bb king would say um i i i had yeah that i i could come closer to getting excited for writing a book about pacing than for a variety of the other things. Also, in, in my head, I framed it as a shorter book, um, and that made it more palatable. So, you know, even though like there was something missing, um, I still used the same formula of you know just um, it's almost like you know like if if you've run you know four marathons and and you finish your fourth and you're like you know what I need a break from marathons and you just do a five k even though like maybe five k is not normally your your bag you know it's just like it's nice as a break and you know this book was a little bit like that um and uh, it, it worked out pretty well you dropped the seed for this i believe and the last time we talked you said this next thing i'm working on is just all about yep. pacing and i obviously wanted to dive into that we didn't get to so i am excited to talk about this because the more things change the more they stay the same in the pacing mm -hmm. world people talk about i'm never going to do this again and they go out and they yep. do it <laughs> and, and and i don't know I can't recall of a printed source of how to approach pacing. And I don't know if that's what this is about, but I'm kind of hungry for this, Matt. Well, and this is, I'll jump in. This is where Matt's ears were ringing because if you recall, Bracken, was it two weeks ago that we put out a Pace Yourself Training Tuesday episode? And that is the, was it two weeks ago? Last week? Last week, last Tuesday. And that is when Matt and I started email interacting. And I was like, huh. And then he's like, the title of my book, On Pace. <laughs> I was like, this is very timely. I just had an athlete just just send me a text message about an epic blow up he just had of astronomical proportions. So I think people need to, this is something that I think we'll constantly relearn. But then I have to imagine this is very metaphorical for what you're sort of going through as well in, a, in an odd way. Um is there any parallels there between the, the? Oh yeah, there is. And you've drawn from like current and personal experiences on the health front to relate them to the running front. Yes, um, you know the the last chapter of this book is is titled Macro Pacing. So you know when runners talk about pacing, we're talking about um, almost always you know 
distributing your effort in a goal-directed way within a single bout of running. Like that's that's pacing, but that's that's only only one form of pacing. You can distinguish it from so you know that that's micro pacing. Macro pacing is the kind of thing I referenced earlier in talking about uh, chronic fatigue syndrome sufferers, where you're 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 not just um, you're not pacing a walk or a run. Uh, you're pacing life. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, very much so it's exactly the same thing, just at a different scale. Um, and there's, you know, there, there are nuances that make the two scales different. You can't use exactly the same tool set to pace effectively on the micro and macro scales, but it is fundamentally the same phenomenon. So this is a book of not just speed, it's volume, timing, everything. Yeah. Most of it is focused on, on, on the micro pacing bit. Um, and then, but then, then that last, that last chapter, I just kind of zoom out and contextualize it. We should probably say the whole name of the book it's on pace. And then how does, what's the, uh, I don't know if it's called subtitles or, or what it's on pace. And then what's the end of it? The, the subtitle is yeah. Discover how to run every race at your real limit. And how did this idea come to you? Because I've got to imagine, like Bracken and I with this podcast, you have a podcast as well, Matt. I know you guys have got some momentum going, but, you know, we're at the point, I mean, we're like, what do we talk about next? Like, what the <laughs> heck can we give people that they haven't gotten already? 31 books deep on one subject of running. Holy smokes. So, like, how did that idea, how did the idea of this book being the one that made sense come to you? Yeah, yeah I, I just think that pacing is really interesting. Uh, way more. It's one of those things that's so familiar that um, you you don't even you don't really ever look at it and linger on it uh, as a phenomenon. And for me, it's just sort of like this like skeleton key to all of running. Like like if you you, you think of it, I think most runners think of it as a small part of the sport. To me, it's the entire sport. It's like it's like a loose thread in a sweater. You pull on it, and you're like, oh, it's just a thread. And before you know it, you've unraveled the entire thing. And so part of the book is I'm actually trying to make that case. Like, you know, this phenomenon is is much bigger than we think it is. And for me, you know, running is, is more than a sport. So when you when you sort of take a deep dive into, you know, what pacing is and how it works and what it means to master it and why not everyone is equally good at it, suddenly you're, you're talking about, you know, the human condition, you know, and, and, and what it means to, to be alive, honestly, you know, um, Cause it's, you know, it's like, it just goes, you know, it just goes deeper than, than like a skill uh, that you learn. So, so why now then where did that, cause you said it was fascinating. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, so we'll know that I'm on board with all that. Holy smokes. And now I have a lot of questions, but, um, <laughs> but like, yeah, like the why, the why now question is just interesting to me, like why it felt right, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got the idea, uh, to write it several years ago, maybe um, uh, several years ago, 2016, 2017. But sometimes, you know, I, it's a lot of work to write a book. Um, and so sometimes when I get an idea that I think, oh, this could be a book, um, I, I just let it sit for a while. I'm like, okay, if it's if it's worth putting in that effort, it won't leave me alone. Um, so yeah, I just, I thought it was um, just quite interesting as a phenomenon. Like, uh, like I always just found myself, you know, I, I, I'm on PubMed, five days a week, um, just, ch you know, checking out the latest exercise science studies. And, and when a new pacing study, uh, is, is published, like I go straight for it. Just, I, I'm, I'm just interested in it. Um, and then, it, and part of it also, just as a coach, you know, when I started running in 1983, 
we didn't really talk about pacing all that much. It was just kind of like, what's the point? You know, we all figure it out sooner or later. But but as a coach nowadays, I, I find that that the average runner really sucks at pacing in a way that that I don't think, you know, I think it like our pacing ability at a population level has declined uh, over the last several decades. I think it's partly because runners are, are a lot of runners are starting later. So they don't have that reservoir of experience. You know, I started when I was 11, uh, like I said. Uh, so partly that, partly, are, you know, are the technology, our wearables, like we're focused so much on the data. We're not even paying attention to our own bodies anymore. Um, so uh, so it's, it's, I see it as like a problem. Like in in my one-on-one work with athletes, we spe- we put a lot of focus on developing uh, pacing skill because it's, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, when you run a race, um, you have a certain potential that you take into it. Like, you know, your fitness is, you know, your fitness is such that you have the potential to run a certain time. It, in the vast majority of cases, you don't actually achieve that time. Like you, you waste a certain percentage of your, uh, percentage of your po- potential through imperfect pacing. And, you know, sometimes it's a small percentage, but, but that's what, that's the problem you're trying to solve. It's like, I worked so hard to build to build this fitness like i want to waste as little of it as possible through uh poor execution so uh, you know I, I tell the athletes i work with like it matters you know <laughs> uh it's worth getting good at and i think it's also just fun i, I think really you know the, the story i told earlier about you know the marathon i ran six and a half weeks after my first post-covid test run um where like that that was a pacing story you know where i just i i, I finished that one knowing I could not have run two seconds faster than I did. Like I absolutely nailed the pacing and like, that's how good you can get at it. Um, and it's, it's so satisfying, you know, if you just like commit to the journey, it can be frustrating too. Um, but in the book, I talk, I, I, I kind of uh, hedge against that by trying to make the process fun. So a lot of the, you know, the, the, you know, the drills and exercises and stuff I give athletes, or have like a gamification aspect to it. So yeah, you're working on developing an important skill, but you're also kind of having fun doing it and kind of growing as a runner as you do it. When we were in college, it was pre-GPS. So we had like four different runs that we did all of our runs on for at least my first bit of college. And they were spray painted on the ground and you would come up to it and you'd know, you'd look at your watch, but we just constantly played that game. What what was that last mile? And it doesn't take a whole mm-hmm. lot to realize that humans are built with an internal metronome. Yep. And then on the track, we we ran, a, I was middle distance in college. So we ran a lot of 200s and 400s and we would just play guess the hundredth because eventually guess the 10th wasn't fun anymore. You'd try mm-hmm. to get to the hundredth. What are, in that, I think that means that uh, this book is for me. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated yep. by yeah. it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it, on one level, it seems like just like a fun party trick or, you know, but it's like, you are actually developing a useful skill when you do that. I mean, you know, there aren't any actual competitions where everyone is asked to like nail a split or whatever. Like that's not exactly the same, you know, that pacing challenge is not exactly the same nature as the pacing challenge you experience in running a half marathon or whatever. But if you can get really good at one, you will get much better at, at the other. So yeah, because really what it comes down to is you're trying to, I think a lot of runners don't appreciate just how similar pacing a race is to throwing a perfect 
pass to a streaking receiver who's covered like a wet blanket by a defensive back and just dropping it right into the bread basket. Like, like, you know, the quarterback who does that is not like performing conscious calculations. He's not consulting a device. He's doing it kinesthetically by feel and, and, you know, pacing like a perfect pacing performance is not as spectacular to behold, but it, it's really the same thing. You're just controlling your body in space in, in a different way. How many times, Kirk, do we talk about some runners get good at certain workouts rather than building race specific fitness? All the time. There are so many skills you can build in a vacuum that do not translate to performance, but pacing is not one of them. If you right. learn how to manage your effort appropriately, yep. it's universal. Yep. And, and the cool thing about it is that like, you don't have to make extra time for it. Like this is not like a mobility routine. You know, it's like, Oh my God, how am I going to squeeze that in? Uh, not, uh, we should all do that. But, um, but pacing <laughs> like, you, like, like you, you can do double duty in every single run you do. Like it, you, you can, the run can provide a specific physical stimulus that creates an adaptation you're seeking at the same time, it can be pacing practice. Um, so it's like, it's something you're already running. So why, so why not, you know, accelerate the process of developing pacing skill while you run. This will be a vague question, but you've touched on it slightly. So what, in relation to pacing, just tell me your your thoughts on technology in relation yep. to, like a little more deeply, like how do you feel about technology and pacing? Because you touched on it, and I'm going to say, and I'm sorry who I'm calling out, I don't know names in particular, but <laughs> the athletes who are constantly – in their watches to understand anything, or they're like, I need to do this on the treadmill so I can get my pacing down. I'm like, that's the exact opposite of what you should do. You shouldn't go on the treadmill to get your pacing down. You're right. You're ruining this before it even starts. Right. Sometimes I let them get away with it. Sometimes I don't. So anyways, I feel very passionate about that. What is your thought on treadmill coupled with technology in regards to pacing? Yeah. Uh, great question. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, if you wanted to straw man me, you, you would portray me as like an anti wearable guy an anti garment dude. And I'm absolutely not like, it's just, you know, there's a difference between saying that something is over relied upon and saying it's bad. Like, I'm not saying these devices are bad. I'm just, they are a crutch. You know, any tool can become a crutch and, and these tools have become crutches for a lot of, of runners. Um, so I, you know, I remember like in the, you know, the, like late nineties, I remember, I remember wishing like, like a device, a speed and distance device existed. Um, and then, you know, actually I remember as a kid eighties <laughs> wishing that. So, you know, I wanted this type of tool to exist because it's very, very useful. Um, but um, it, it's just, it's, it's kind of a, like a paradox, like the, the, the runners who, who get the most benefit from their watches are the ones who need them least. It's like they still use them, but they're very selective mm. about how they use them and they're very much in control. Like a, a, a runner who has mastered pacing or, or has come well along in that process, like they will um, they will overrule their device. Uh, like when, when there's a disagreement between what the device says and, and what their body tells them or what they're thinking, like they're very comfortable saying, shut up. Garmin, uh, and, and if you get to that point, then you're, like your Garmin is serving you. But but so many runners are 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 not there. It's a hindrance. That just came up in an Ironman I was watching, and I forgot what it was. But we had just spent 
I don't know, several years hearing about the pros hit their wattage. No matter what, they come in, they know, they get out of the swim and they get right to pushing their wattage and they tell their body, shut up mm-hmm. about it. We know what we can push. We're not going to over. And then someone, I don't know if it was Lionel or who, they got done with their race <laughs> and they said the opposite. Mm-hmm. I looked down and it kept saying I was hitting over what I was supposed to be doing, that I was going to blow up. And I said, ah, screw you. I don't care anymore. I know right. I can do this. And they went out and nailed yep. the race. It's like, it's always true until it's right. not. And the more you don't need it is the more often you can trust yourself to that it doesn't have to be true anymore. Yes. Yep. I wish I could remember what race that was because it was such a good interview afterwards because it flew in the face of everything I wanted to tell most <laughs> athletes. And yet it was important at that moment. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to, it's like, I'm, I'm waffling this line between asking you too many specific questions and making people go read the book, right? Because that's obviously a, an objective here. We need, we want people to read the book. So I want to use this case, this example, and this is an athlete who texted me today and it was mile repeats, a very standard mile repeat workout. His first mile, 610, his last mile, 720. Okay. Not great. Right. I said, that's painful, man. I said, that is, as a disaster. What process happens here? Like, what is, what is this gentleman going through? What, what is he missing? What, what would the other people who see that, uh, sort of trend in their workouts? What are they missing? What's going on here? Well, (laughs) it started too fast. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, let me write that down. Let's make a t-shirt, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it can be, I mean, that can happen for more than one reason, actually. Um, it, it, you know, sometimes it's um, uh, just a failure to think ahead, to a failure to consider the entire task versus the first rep. It's like, hey, the first rep felt okay. I'm good. It's like, well, you got nine more, buddy. <laughs> that can be part of it. Part of it can be just... Um, treating, uh, you know, failing to distinguish between the spirit of the workout and the letter of, of the workout. Like I'm big on that with my athletes. It's like, you know, I, I am not Nostradamus. I do not have a crystal ball. When I give you uh, pace targets for, um, you know, for a workout, they're educated guesses. Like I, I think they're going to be good for you today, but I don't know for sure. And, and I'm, I'm counting on you to understand the, the, the spirit of the workout and not just the, the letter of it and be able to uh, adapt uh, on the ground when I'm not there with you um, in a way that preserves you know, your adherence to the spirit of the workout. You, you know, like more often than not, it's like, you know, you're feeling kind of flat today and, and, and the paces are too aggressive. Uh, but sometimes you have a, like, you have like just, you know, flubber in your shoes and you just feel bouncy and energetic and, and actually you can and should take advantage and go a little faster than, than coach told you to do. So you know, just, you know, you know, just, you know, just saying coach said run this and I'm going to do it if it kills me, that can lead to blowing up the, the way your athlete did. Um, and then, uh, yeah, part of it, I will say this as well, you know, like that sort of like really blowing it like that, uh, not just in a workout, but in a race. I mean, my God, like my first marathon, my goal time was two forty five, and I think I ran three thirty eight, <laughs> and <laughs> And I, I was on Ouch. pace at the half. I, I was on pace. Yeah, a lot of walking in that second half. Um, but you know what? So yeah, that was a disaster. 
but it, it wasn't a waste, you know, like in the book, I say, you know, the, the road to pacing mastery is paved with pacing errors. Like you, you want to, you want to make those mistakes. You just don't want to keep repeating the same mistakes, but so much of it is experiential. Like you just, you just have to mess up and go through the process. It's like, you know, there's interesting studies on this that have shown, like they show like um, longitudinal, longitudinally, the, the rate of improvement in pacing ability over time, like over years. And the people who improve their pacing, the athletes who improve their, their pacing skill most quickly um, are those who, who they don't have more experience. They, they're more mindful about their experience. So, you know, they mess up and they think about it. They're like, okay, what's the lesson here? What's my plan to not make the same mistake um, next time? It, it's that mindfulness, that self-reflection piece that, allows you to you know, glean more learning from the same amount of experience. Recently, I've gone over this with a few athletes because we've had some people trying distances they are not familiar with. And so, to, like for example, one person, I just got rid of standing starts. They have to use rolling starts now into a rep where instead of standing at the line, hitting their watch and go like, that's inherently jittery. That gets you excited to blast off the line. I said, you you have to roll into your, you need a 20 meter or 50 meter accelerate, get to where you want to be. And then you get to start your watch and go. Now that's a really simple, basic one to start teaching. Don't blow up by keeping yourself relaxed. But I've got to imagine you have spent a lot of time with tips and tricks of that without giving away the whole bag here. Uh, pique people's interest with some, some low level, yep. low hanging fruit strategies. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, a couple, a couple of them. Um, it's not like there are, you know, fifty-one different ways to get better at pacing. Like, there's only a small handful. Uh, but there, are, there are lots of different variations mm -hmm. on um, those handful. Um, and and t you know, two of the, the the most fundamental ones are almost the opposite of each other. One way to get good at pacing is to um, to to uh, allow yourself the space to become deeply familiar with a certain stimulus so like there's a bread and butter workout that you just do over and over and over um and as you do that it's like you know the first time you visit a new city it, it just all looks the same and then you move there and you've lived there for five years and you're like oh no it's a bunch of different neighborhoods Are you kidding me like like can't you tell like we've just crossed from x neighborhood into y neighborhood and you know what i mean like the the, the more the more you become familiar with any type of experience like the more nuance uh, you, you, uh, you, you just, you're just, you're, you're observing it on a much more fine grained level. So, um, do you know, those bread and butter, butter workouts are, are one way. Um, what would be an example of a bread and butter workout? Like, is there anything in particular that jumps out a type or it could be anything? Yeah, it could just be something that's you know relevant to whatever race distance, you know, you're training for. So it could be, you know, um, you know, if you're, if you're a 10 K person doing, you know, uh, you know, four minute repeats at critical velocity. Like maybe, you know, you, at the, when, when you're just coming off your base, you do four times four minutes uh, with two minutes easy in between. And then a few weeks later, you circle back around and you add a second interval. And then when you're getting ready to peak for your 10K, you, you circle back around and add a sixth interval. Same workout. Um, and when you get three bites at the same apple like that, you just, you just find, you, you just become more comfortable uh, you notice more like what's going on. You can make comparisons, um, you know, across, you know, the, the, the iterations of, of the workout. Um, but it can be anything. It just, you know, it should be relevant, you know, on, on a physiological level to whatever you're training for. Um, 
you know, but then you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I, in the book, I talk about, I share an example of, um, you know, we say variety is the spice of life, but a lot of elite runners, um, their training is very monotonous. They, they do this, you know, they, they, you know, they're, they're doing like, um, there's a, a Japanese runner who, uh, a woman who, who broke the, uh, her, her country's national record in half marathon, um, uh, last name Naya. Um, but, um, but her, her training leading up to that record breaking performance was posted online. And it's just the same shit over and over. Like she ran faster than mm-hmm. any Japanese woman ever had for that, like 106 something for the half. And it was just like same, same, like three workouts over and over for 12 weeks. Um, she just like leaned into them a little bit more as time went on. And like you see, when you look at the details, like the paces she's hitting in the workouts, they were exactly the pace she, she ran in the half marathon. So that's one thing. But you know, another thing that's just as valuable is exactly the opposite of that. I call them novel pacing challenges. That's when you, it's a little bit more advanced. Um, like if you're really good at, you know, the, the bread and butter workouts, um, then you want to sort of lean more on novel pacing challenges, which is just throwing in, throwing curveballs at yourself. Um, one workout that I, that I absolutely love for that, it comes from the, the legendary French exercise physiologist, uh, Veronique Blot, um, and they're, they're long accelerations. So a, a lot of a lot of runners are familiar with you know what they call accelerations are is like a version of strides where you start at a jog and end at a sprint after 15 seconds rest do it again. Long accelerations are like um, the ones that Balat uses are are three six and eleven minutes. So the idea is like you know just take the eleven minute accel- acceleration. You're supposed to start from your normal easy running pace and end at a dead sprint, and you cannot look at your watch and you have to be accelerating continuously. For 11 minutes um and it's just so cool um i only had one chance to do it before long covid stripped my ability to run but it, you, you are just so you are you're it's almost it's it's as mentally taxing as it is physically taxing because you're you're just really tuning in and just like does this feel like i'm speeding up it's so hard to tell but i kind of think so um and it's just it, it's great and, and any athlete almost any athlete you give that workout to the first time that they, they just it's a shit show <laughs> they, they blow it but you you let them do it again and it's way better and and but but then you can't just keep doing it because these are novel pacing challenges not familiarization so you i i love cooking up different ways of throwing pacing curveballs at athletes so those two things they're they work in very very different ways but they're highly complementary that long acceleration sounds maddening. You could just constantly, like every stride, you'd be thinking, am I doing it too gradual or yes. too aggressive? Yeah. Three minutes yeah. sounds somewhat reasonable. 11 minutes sounds ludicrous. Asinine. <laughs> uh, just if you, if you embrace it, uh, yeah, it's a little maddening, but uh, it's, oh, it's, it's a blast. I've been using a workout called Pace Proof recently, and it's basically... It looks different for every single person I've ever given it to, but it's tell me what you think you can do right now. And we're starting rep one at that and we're doing short rest and you have to do it until you degrade X percent. And if you make it, let's say it was a 10K race, like we're just going to do 10 by thousand at 60 seconds. And whatever your first rep is, once you degrade more than 10 seconds on a K, you're done. And then we, you know, we know a little bit, maybe you were aggressive with what you thought you could do, or maybe it's climbing. I bet I can climb for an hour at 60 feet per minute. All right. We're going to do 100 foot reps. 
at 60 feet per minute with 40 seconds, you know, that kind of thing. But I've only done it interval based. I've yet to try like an 11 minute. You must think every single second about how you're doing it appropriately. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to come at it uh, and that's kind of the idea. Um, So I give a lot of examples in the book, but I also encourage athletes to come up with their own formats. Um, It's like, uh, the, the possibilities are endless. I mean, some of them could be just dumb. Um, you know, maybe you think long accelerations are dumb, but <laughs> I didn't say dumb, dumb as in you would hate it. <laughs> All right. So looking at pacing, they, again, we were middle distance runners and there is real evidence of how to optimally pace an 800 meter run. Yep. And it's something like, 104 and then 96 with a pacing of over your, your sustainable pace versus under. And they've got it down to almost every record was set between this and this. And then I don't know if you saw at the Commonwealth Commonwealth games, uh, the, I believe it was a Kenyan athlete. She won the 800 and she went 200 hard, 250 float, and then closed the race off. She went first, last, Mm -hmm. first. And it just blew, it blew everyone's assumptions of, but it was a championship race. So you can give that a pass, but point being 800, 1500 meters, a little bit less, but close. They have almost to the 10th, how you need to parcel your pacing. Where have you seen, whether this is through science or through just anecdotal evidence, where have you seen it drop off to the point where it is now totally intrinsic? It's based on feel. What's that tipping point distance wise? Well, I mean, you know, you can conduct a statistical ana- analysis on real world race performances at any distance and find patterns that you could turn into a prescription. You know what I mean? So true. Um, you know, even in hundred milers, you know, there's th- that's kind of interesting where it, you know, it seems to be like if, if, you know, if you look at, you know, elite performances at, at you know, at the hundred mile distance, um, almost everyone who, who, you know, wins a major championship at, at that distance or breaks a record at, at that distance, they are, they're dying at the end. Of the, they, they are, they're slowing mm-hmm. down, down. Um, but they're just slowing down less than, um, you know, th- those, those who finish behind them. So that, that appears to be, you know, a, kind of a, a pattern that, that you can, like, you, like, you know, it's helpful because you don't go into that distance thinking, expecting not to slow down right you know well if if the world if the last five world record holders at this distance have slowed down i I'll, i think it's okay for me too so um yeah it's just interesting you know because you, you can get you can really geek out on physiology you know you know why is the 800 meter pattern different from the 10k pattern which is different from the 100 mile pattern and you you also have to be careful when when you're uh looking at the pointy end of the spear not to not to assume that that's one size fits all um because you know, the example i often give is, is the marathon um for a five-hour marathon or a marathon is really an ultra it's not the same race as it is for a, a 215 marathoner right. so uh, 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 you know there's no there's not a lot of data here but I, i'm inclined to think for that five-hour marathoner that a negative split is unrealistic um, that, that, you know, that if you just make that a blanket, everyone should negative split their marathons. I'm not so sure about that. So you have to, um, you know, it's interesting to look at the, the point end of the spear, but you have to kind of, uh, you know, don't leave your common sense at the door. Yeah. And I think that applies to that distance based question I led with, which is what's the repeatability mm-hmm. factor. 
an 800 meter, you could go out and race every 48 hours for probably three yep. weeks if yep. you were well trained, where like you get a hundred miler wrong, you've got to wait months to try it again. And so when you look at the finished results, the, it is it correlation or causation. Right. Like did did those people get it right or did they get it less wrong right. than everyone else? And you just don't have repeatability. Right. So I guess with your athletes, what is your tipping point time-wise maybe of duration of a race where you stop looking at splits and start talking more about how they need to feel at a point? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that's where you, you there's sort of another layer. It's like you, you can't put the elites in the middle of the Packers in the same bucket always. Sometimes, sometimes what applies to the elites does um, apply to everyone. Uh, so that's one nuance. And then the other is like the individual, you know, you actually have to look at you know, that, that person, um, because optimal pacing for a given athlete at a given different distance might be a little different. Um, you know, I, I have, I have one athlete I've, I've coached for a while and, and we talk about her diesel engine, like it just takes her time to get going. So she is you know, just always kind of like, a, she's doing, you know, talk about long accelerations, like that's her pattern. And I'm pretty well convinced that 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 I don't want to mess with that. You know, we can, we can optimize it, but it seems to work for her and, and it wouldn't work for another athlete at the, at, at the same distances. Um, I suppose there's a Dave Waddle for yeah. every <laughs> yeah. race distance where, sorry, I used to think you could solve anyone who's a diesel engine with the proper warm up pattern. That if you could get the right warm up, they could hit the ground running. And eventually I realized I'm wrong. You can't. <laughs> Some people just have to wind up their race yeah. and others have to front run. Some people yeah. have to be out of the pack, free and clear, yep. clear air, just chomping at the bit. And it doesn't make sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Steve Prefontaines of the world. Yeah. You have to, you have to know, like, you know, you have to know, know your style or, or learn your style. Um, you know, when you get to, um, you know, the, the extreme differences, like you know, if I have an athlete who's, uh, you know, training for their first Ironman, um, uh, I will not give them, um, uh, I will not help them set a goal for the marathon. I will say it's, it's utterly pointless. We just, it's a black box. You just, you just have to experience it. And then for sure we can set a goal for the second one. Um, so it, you know, it's long enough, like you're not going to, like if you're really conservative in the first two miles of your Ironman marathon, trust me. You are not going to finish the race and look back and say, damn it, I should have come out hotter out of T2. Like, <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. Like, it, it like, like if it turns out you just have a gift, you know, for running off the bike at this distance and it's your day, you got time, you know, to leave it all out there. Don't worry about it. So this is just practice. <laughs> this is practice. Um, Maybe that's that 11 minute acceleration, but for 26 miles. Yeah. Hey, I will say uh, for in my two, the two Ironmans I've done, I don't think I negative split them, but I, I even, I dead even split pretty much both of them. So, and, and I really ran by feeling both. I had, a, you know, especially in the first one, I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, it's just another one of those cases where you just kind of feel your way through it. Trust your instincts a little bit. Don't be stupid. Do pay attention to the, the numbers um, and things can work out. Do you use time trialing frequently for that? To get some of these hiccups out of the way. Yeah. Yes. I have, um, you know, one of my, one of my favorite, um, tools, uh, pacing tools that I don't, I haven't actually seen another coach use them, but I, I always relied on them heavily in, in my own training. Um, and I use them with, with athletes I coach is what I call relaxed time trials. 
Um, and they, you know, I've gone all the way up to the marathon because I'm insane, but, uh, but they work, they tend to work best at like 5k and 10k. So, you know, if you're, if you're training for a 5k, you know, two to three weeks out, you run uh, a 5k at, uh, uh, like a, a 95% effort. So you think you take a guess, you know, you've done most of your training. You kind of know where you are. You think, you know, my goal for the, the race itself or, or what I think I can do is X. And then you, you, you aim to run about, you know, mathematically 5% slower than that. Um, and it sounds like, wow, you're really just you know blowing your race, you know, three weeks before the race. No, like 5% is huge. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, it's a hard workout, but you finish it and you're fine the next day. Like that, that, that last 5% is uh, very difference making, but, um, but then you can really get a good sense of, of where you are. Um, because uh, if you blow it, you can finish saying, actually, that was 99.5%. I got to be honest. But um, I, I remember the last one of those I did, and I, I think I brag about this in the book. Um, I ran a, a 10K uh, relaxed time trial. And then this was, this was again, in the COVID days. So my, my, my 10K race was another virtual race. But I, you know, I consciously went you know, 95% in the first one and 100% in the last one. And it was actually a, a PR attempt. Um, and I ran exactly five percent faster in, 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 in the real thing. <laughs> so yeah, that's good. <laughs> Before you move on, Kirk, I just want to close that off. People oftentimes say, "Why are people pulling up in races?" Like when they have their qualifier into the next round, why are they pulling up the last fifty meters? It doesn't matter. Just run through the line. You could have PR'd those last fifty. That last percentage or two between a hundred percent in high nineties really is impactful unless you've had to kick in a race versus coast in it. You don't really understand exactly how detrimental the final, even just hundred meters can be to your recovery. If you have to yeah. fully empty yeah. versus coast just a tiny yeah. bit. Yes. hundred percent. I think that's the difference between two days recovery and a week and a half recovery. Sometimes that last 5%. Yep. I mean, really it's yes. that astounding. Yeah. Having to go to that, that next level, something I've been meaning to get to with you, um, Matt, speaking to like the non, let's say professional track runner who is very dialed in with splits. I feel like a lot of people try to think their way through pacing they try to cerebralize it, right? It's a brain thing, not a body thing. Yeah. Um, and I think they're wrong. <laughs> I think it is a body thing. I think that if you told me to go out and run five minutes in the mile, I could do it within two seconds without a watch. I firmly believe that. And the same goes down the line, right? And and that's not a brain thing. I'm feeling it, right? It's not a – I'm feeling it with my body, not my mind, we'll call it, right? Um, I – what, how would you distinguish the difference? Like people are like, well, if I go out in 705 and then I come back in 705, like they try to, they do these things and they almost never yep. hit it, right? They almost never hit it, but they try to rationalize it with their brain. So what I'm getting at is how, what do you tell us? Like what is best? How, like how much of it is brain? How much of it is body? Meaning like you just got to like your feelings are your feelings and emotionally are your feelings, your feelings when you're running as well, or can you outthink it? I think is what I'm getting at. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is semantics, but I mean, it, it really is a brain thing. Obviously, you, you cannot well, sure, without sure, a brain, sure. but it's I know, huh. I, 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 I know what you <laughs> mean. <laughs> like it's it's not, um, you know, it's it's it, it's really like, um, you know, it's kinesthetic. Like it's your it's your brain talking to your body. It's not your brain 
looking at your watch or your brain doing math or your brain counting. Um, so yeah, that's what it means to really overthink it is to, is to think that you don't, you can, cause you really need to do both. Like, um, you know, like it, it's good to, you know, just glance at your watch every now and then and check on your pace. It's good to know, uh, we all appreciate mile markers in, in road races, like, okay, that that's two miles. Um, so that helps like, you know, uh, you know, just, um, objective, um, quantifiable benchmarks are, are helpful. Um, you know, uh, it's part of the reason that, you know, a, a human can pace, um, a marathon and a horse can't, you know, it's just because like our, our brains can, con we can comprehend abstract distances. So, um, you know, so it's important to do that, but, but, it, you know, the mistake that, that too many runners these days make, um, is, uh, is that they're, they're, they're tuning out the, their body. Um, and, you know, the problem there is that like, you know, that, uh, Heraclitus quote, you know, a man can never cross the same river twice because it's, he's not the same man and it's not the same river. Like every, that's why I love the word performance for what we do in races, because, every single race you do, every single workout is a one-off. Like you, you are a slightly different runner than you've ever been each time you run and you are in slightly different circumstances. So, I mean, this will never happen. There will never be a device or, you know, calculation that can tell you exactly how to pace a race. Ain't going to happen. Like there's far too many variables. Like the, the way you truly master it is to just be able to take whatever is thrown at you. Um, on, on that day um you know i remember like you know my first or not my first two like two two years in a row i remember i ran bought the boston marathon when it was warm like you know like 70 degrees or low 70s which is not optimal i mean it's not a heat wave but you know it's not optimal for a marathon and so many runners just like they had a goal and they didn't adjust and they blew up and you know i had no idea how much i needed to slow down from my my optimal weather goal but I knew I needed to slow down and I just felt my way through it. And I keep bragging about my pacing feats, but I'm sorry, I got pretty good at it. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, both times I feel, I felt like I nailed it. You know, I, I, I couldn't, you know, maybe, I mean, there are calculators that tell you, but you, you know, yeah, you know, you got to take those with a grain of salt. You see, so you, you have to hone that ability. And I think, you know, something that a lot of runners don't appreciate is that it's doable. Like people like don't try. Oh, it's just a feeling. How could that be super accurate? Well, it, it can, <laughs> you know, just like that quarterback who can throw a perfect pass, not just once, you know, like a fluky thing, like, but almost every time, like, you know, it, it, it's hard to explain, but these things are doable. And, and, you know, the, the kinesthetic way to pacing mastery is a hell of a lot more reliable than, you know, trying to just, you know, think your way through it. Do you think the, the best in the world at, the, let's talk about the tip of the spear, but the best in the world, are they, and you know this because you've trained with them, are they running track repeats and constantly glancing at their watches to to affirm, maybe they're given a goal pace so they have to, or are they more literally feeling it out when they're out there? Like, how are these elites training, like when you were in Arizona? Um, what, what did you observe there? Yeah, it's, you know, they are um, certainly paying attention uh, but it's more of like a, like a, like as little as necessary. Um, so, you know, because think of it, like, you know, let's say, um, I, I remember one workout I did, um, with the team that was, um, well, it was, it was an epic workout, but one part of it was, you know, some repeat miles. 
and and there were cut downs so i think the the pros it was pro men they were asked to run like 436 434 432 something like that um and what what they would do is like they would get and you know the coach had cones out every 200 meters so at 200 meters they would they would all look at their watch and see if they were on pace if they were you know they're good because they have so much practice they don't like well if i'm on pace all i do is just stay at the same pace and and they they can feel that they haven't slowed down or sped up so it, it's no big they don't have to just keep looking at the watch um so yeah mm. that's how they do it mm. Yeah, that reminds me of these, you see these hero workouts kind of that you see from pro runners. I think Alan Webb had one one day, one year where he was like 155, 155, 155, 149 in practice, you know, for the 800 meter reps. And you saw it, I think Centrowitz has a few where he's closing out a workout in 49 and everyone's like, can you believe he ran a 150 flat last date in training? Or can you believe he ran 49? And they almost missed the impressive part or the important part, which is, can you believe they held back on five straight <laughs> and were able to rip something at the end? Yeah. Like if the average person had to go out and do that, they'd run with their talent, with, with yeah. Alan Webb's talent. They would have gone yeah. 152, 152, 158, 204, <laughs> yeah. rather yeah. than 55, 55, 55, 150. Yeah. And maybe I'm butchering those splits a little bit, but it's almost like you can't have one without the other. For you to be world-class executing your speed you have to know when not to pull the trigger yeah. is just as important as when to pull the trigger. Just You see those hero workouts and you can see how precise they were in order to do something outrageous. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is tangential, but what, we, what you just said reminds me of a, a point I make. Um, you know, one thing that a lot of you know, less skilled pacers will do is they, they always tailor their effort to the duration of the segment. So the example I give is like, if I asked you to run 100 times 20 seconds at marathon pace, most runners would sprint the first 20 seconds and completely explode well before they got, cause it's like, oh, 20 seconds. And, and they're like, oh, it's like they have you know, two speeds, slow and fast. So, and, and the only fine tuning they do is just strictly based on the duration of the effort. And, and so, you know, mm -hmm. a very skilled pacer could say, okay, marathon pace. And when it came time for the first out of 120 second efforts at marathon pace, they would accelerate to something very close to marathon pace and they would still be standing for, for rep 100. Yeah. So yeah, there are all kinds of different ways where you can, you can see where you just kind of box yourself in, um, or as I say in the book, pace yourself into a corner, you know. Oh, clever. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I bet the more you could identify who has potential to be elite in their pacing by who misses on what side of the margin. Yes. Like I would bet the elite marathoners would maybe be a tick or two slow on that first 20 second. Yes. Yeah. Just inherently unwilling to tip. Yep. Um, yeah. Something I talk about with my athletes a lot is um, sort of like beginner or rookie pacing errors and advanced pacing errors so um you know with an athlete i've been you know working on pacing for a while if if they you know sometimes we actually just for fun i don't i'm not draconian but um but you know we'll give letter grades to their pacing um and if it's like a b um i, I might say yeah it's a b not an a but you you made an advanced pacing error in this one versus a, a rookie pacing error what would be an example of each 
Yeah, like you know, a, a, a rookie pacing error is almost always starting too fast and 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 dying. Um, and whereas, like you know, a more advanced error would be um, erring on the side of, of caution. But there, are, you know, there are other examples, but that that's the obvious one. Yeah, we might have even discussed this last time. That darkness study. Did we talk about that? Yeah, uh, I I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, that was probably the most illuminating pacing study I'd read in a long time. It just stuck with me for years. I couldn't stop talking about it. How when you put runners in the dark, they couldn't feel the pace. Mm-hmm. And it just blew my mind. And then you led to reasons why and decoupling mind from feel based on external circumstances that shouldn't matter and feeling your pace. But along the way, that was my big like, wow, that just, even if it wasn't super important, like when do I use that? Yep. I'm never going to have an athlete run a pitch black race without a headlamp. Maybe that's the closest, but I'll never use that, but it just kind of blew my mind. What along the way just kind of jumped out at you. What were the most interesting things you learned that you didn't go into this research with? <sighs> mind blowing. You, that's putting a guy on a spot on the spot. I got. I got. Maybe be- not mind blowing, but what what su- surprised you throughout this, or did you come across and think, "Huh, I wouldn't have wouldn't have assumed that." You know, I, I would say, you know, I, I hate to give you one I, I mentioned already, but one was like that that longitudinal stuff, you know, that filled in a gap because, you know, I've, paid, I've been paying attention to pacing research and, you know, uh, you know, just real world pacing uh, for a long time. So when I start when I sat down to write this book, I wasn't starting at zero. I, I already knew a lot about pacing, but the the stuff about like like who gets who improve, who gets better at pacing faster I hadn't really thought about before and why. And the fact that it's that sort of, um, you know, that self-reflection piece, like, you know, just uh, doing like, you know, post, you know, post-race, post-workout analysis. Of your, that's why we do the letter grades thing. It's just like, what do we do? What, right? What do we do? Long, wrong? What do we learn? Some people just do that in, instinctively. Um, and they're the ones who, you know, who, who get better faster that that's kind of interesting um there's also just some you know some really cool studies that have um you know highlighted the the importance of of experience um like like there's one like there's just no substitute for experience like there's you you can accelerate it you can't shortcut it um so there was a study done i think it was with soccer players and distance runners and they were asked it's like one of those games like they were asked to run like either a certain distance or for a certain duration just on their body clock so it's just like, okay, go and stop when you think you've run, you know, five minutes or, or two miles or whatever it was. Um, and, you know, the distance runners did way, way better than, than the soccer players as a group. But it's interesting, you know, soccer is mostly running. So it wasn't like it was, it wasn't like it was distance runners and couch potatoes. It was really just two different kinds of runner. One that's doing, that's doing that sort of thing all the time. And one that isn't, you know, soccer players are like sprint, stop, sprint, stop, hmm. sprint, sprint, stop. So it just shows you like, you know, um, to me, I, I would cite that for a runner who's getting frustrated, like, you know, just like, why can't I get this? It's like, it takes time. Like, you, you know, there's just, there's no shortcut. You got, you got to put in the reps. Are there non-responders? Oh yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it can be, it's a little delicate, um, you know, to, to talk about this, but um, IQ factors into uh, intelligence, factors into how good you can get at pacing. For the same reason a horse can't pace a marathon, someone, and it's a certain kind of intelligence, uh, but it is a a kind of intelligence, like that ability to comprehend abstract distances is a pretty high brain function. And, you know, there's, um, 
uh, you know, uh, one study I can think of that was done with um, uh, developmentally disabled uh, runners who, and they found that they, they just could not pace as well um, as, as con, um, controls or, or another cohort that, that was not developmentally disabled. So, um, you know, that, you know, and, and it's, but it's, you know, it's not just, I, it sounds awful, but I, I didn't do the study. Okay. It's just, this, <laughs> this is just it's, it's the reality, but yeah, it's like, it's like any skill, like, you know, not everyone can get equally good at it. I remember having a debate with, with a coach about this. It's like, Oh, you just practice and, and you get good. It's like, no, <laughs> like yeah, every, everyone gets better. Like that's that, that I can say everybody gets better, but, but not everyone has, um, the potential to become, you know, like uh, a Ben Bruce, uh, one of the runners who and is the elite team. Um, he actually he was late in his career and he transitioned into coaching. Um, he, he was like a runner coach, and his job was to pace people. Like he, he paced Kira D'Amato when she ran two twenty two at the marathon project in late twenty twenty early twenty one. And the guy is just incredible. He paced me for some of my workouts when I was there, and it's just like. And I, you know, I interviewed him for the book and, and I asked him like, where, where did that come from? And he's like, I don't know. Like the, and he, funny, th funny, funny thing is he was a late starter. Uh, he, his, he didn't run track until college. And so it, it I didn't showed, realize that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he ran cross country in high school, but, but not track. And so it, it, when he was still a freshman in college, he was promoted to, you know, the, the plum job of leading the first rep in track workouts because he was just so damn reliable. Well, that's obviously kind of a natural gift. Um, he, he got mm -hmm. better with experience too, but um, yeah, we, you know, we, we all can't be the best at, at pacing or anything else. That IQ thing balances out though. There's just as many people who are too smart for their own good and can't take themselves to the well because they can't get out mm -hmm. of self-preservation mode. Well said. No, you just saved everybody's butts there, Bracken, with that one. <laughs> yeah otherwise the next time i tell someone they bombed pacey and they call me dumb well, yeah are you saying that? <laughs> yeah i was actually it's funny you brought that up because i was just gonna ask you matt i was gonna say are there people who are hopeless like it will never happen are there people who are lost causes your answer is maybe no i i think there are people who um you know they're they're at that end of the spectrum um i i don't I mean, the only the only the only runner who would be a lost cause or hopeless is someone who is just stubborn and, and you know refused to learn. So it's more that's more of an attitude thing. But I, I truly believe that any runner who like embraces the project uh, of getting better at pacing will improve substantially. I am. Um, there's two things about pacing I still want to get to with you, and the first is we haven't said the word heart rate yet. Not one time. And I'm actually surprised we're an hour over an hour and a half in this and we haven't talked about heart rate. And I feel like that um, has got to be a question listeners are asking themselves right now. Like, where does heart rate factor into this? Um, is that something you dive into in the book? And what are your what are your thoughts on it in relation to pacing? Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't because, you know, I mean, what is pace? It's time over distance has nothing to do with heart rate. I mean, that, that, that is what pace is. It's not, it's not, um, a physiological phenomenon. Um, it's just, you know, this, this metric. So when you're learning to pace, you are focused on, uh, time and distance and how those things connect to, uh, subjective experience. So, I mean, you, you can become the greatest pacer who ever lived without ever wearing a heart rate. It, I mean, it wouldn't hinder you in the least never to wear a heart rate monitor. 
to have no clue what your resting or max heart rate is or, or your threshold heart rate. It, it's, it's utterly irrelevant uh, in that regard. Uh, but it, 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 you know, it, there, yeah, I'll back up, you know, pacing is like, it's really, a, it's, you know, the goal directed distribution of effort, you know, across an exercise bout. So obviously there's a big difference between the goal in an easy run and the goal in a race, right? Like the, the, they're, they're both go goal. They both have goals. You're pacing yourself in both, but the nature of the task is completely different. And so when you're looking at like a workout that's supposed to be like a, a gentler stimulus or just, you know, where the idea is not performance, then heart rate can be in a sense, a, a pacing tool, even though it's not literally uh, time over distance, um, you can pay attention to pace, uh, you know, to help you distribute your effort appropriately in order to achieve the goal of that session. So that's when pacing comes in, I mean, heart rate comes into the pacing conversation uh, and can be, you know, super useful. Um, I keep getting the semantics. Uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm a stickler for terms. <laughs> well, well, no, I'm glad you did because I think a lot of the people I know they mesh them right together. Like if you're talking right. pacing, you're talking heart rate. Like, come on, give me a heart right. rate. What am I supposed to stay at or under for these mile repeats? I'm like, right. if you're looking at your heart rate on these mile repeats, you're missing the boat here. We can find out what this workout did to you after the fact. We can comb through the data just to know. But anyway, so people just, I know there's going to be a lot of people at home wondering like, why aren't they talking about heart rate? And I assume this was the answer you were going to give me. Um, I guess like in a sense, like let's say something as long as a two, three, four hour race, a marathon, for example, um, just so people know what they're getting, like heart rate doesn't come into the equation in this, in this pacing book, correct? This is, this is not about heart rate and, and that it's not really even used as a reference point as far as pacing goes for you. Yeah. I mean, you would, you would find the words heart rate in the index somewhere. I mean, it, it comes up, uh, but yeah, it's not a focus. <laughs> okay. I'm just making sure. Yep. Well, and I think that's important because whenever an episode comes out, I'm sure whenever a book comes out for you or an episode or a talk, there's people who take it as blanket statements. Yep. And it seems like it'd be much more about balancing the equation. We don't care if you're using heart rate, pace, time versus miles. If you're using uh, blood lactate monitoring, it doesn't matter as long as you have pieces in there that force you to also feel yep. it viscerally. Yep. Yes. Um, yeah, I, one of my mottos is whatever works. I, I'm, I am a pragmatist. And so like, yeah, more than one thing can, can be useful. It, you know, it's, uh, yeah, exactly as you say. One thing we hear a lot of is what about, uh, running metrics via a stride pod or something with Watts? How can we do power output for runners? Is it there yet? Do you trust it? What, can I just go all in on it? Do you address this in the book or do you have personal feelings on where running, power metrics are now versus where they will be when you fully trust them? Yeah. Or if that even is a future that you yeah. see? Um, I would say a majority of the athletes I coach now um, are uh, stride stride users. Um, and Due to you or just because of the nature of the field? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't tell anyone that Oh, you need to get one of these things. But I have found it's one of these things where I, I wish one of the reasons I wish I could still run was so that I could get more experience uh, using mm -hmm. one because it's, it's just not the same. But I, I have found uh, the the power meters um, to be very very helpful uh, to coaching. They, I mean, they do something. Mean, the same reason they're. I mean, let's be clear. Like these things do not actually measure power. Like in 
uh, <laughs> on a bike they do but it doesn't even it, what matters is whether they're consistent not whether they're accurate, accurate. all right yeah so uh, like i have found them um you know super super reliable uh, you know in, in the you know the last 2 3 years and they just they do something you can use them you can do things with them that you can't with the other their, the other metrics so there's no ramp up in heart rate to wait exactly. for exactly yep step 1 they click in that is nice yes and like you know the you know um you know to t- topography doesn't affect power the way it does pace so you know the, the, I, I love it like i love working with athletes um who uh use pace heart rate and power cuz I, I i will go back and forth like you'll you'll see you know a a pace based run a power based run and a heart rate based run all in the same week for some athletes because each one is is better for that particular session and Mm -hmm. and rpe too you can toss that in um so yeah i'm a fan when do you refuse to use it where is it not yet applicable outside of obvious things like running through super technical terrain where where have you found its limitations to lie that are fixable in like the next gen or two of the of the product Uh, well i mean you have to be careful like when you change your shoes or when you go from indoors to outdoors or when you go from road to track to trail they're they're, they can be subtle uh differences um and then there can be um issues with uh, weight change. So if an athlete gains or, or loses weight, the, you have to sort of, uh, you know, kind of reset. Um, it's not that different from gaining or losing fitness. Um, but if you're not paying attention to that, you can be like, oh man, you're really, you're like, you're losing power here. What's going on? Um, and it's like, well, I lost 15 pounds. <laughs> my, my, my power mm-hmm. to weight ratio has actually gone up coach. Um, so you just, you know, there's, there's some, you know, some fine print that you have to pay attention. Like with any metric, you, there's there's a burden of interpretation on the the coach and the athlete. You can't just like, you know, the example I give in, in the book is like when when a fire alarm goes off, there is absolutely no ambiguity about what it means and what you need to do. With any sort of data you're using, um, you know, to monitor you know, your running, that's not the case. Like you 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 can't just you know, it's not that simple. You have to interpret the number you're seeing and then contextualize it and and then make a decision about how to apply it. That's a really good point. I ran a race one time where I looked down after getting really sweaty and I checked my heart rate and it was at 102 and I just took the strap off. But then there's a race I looked down expecting to see about 170 and I saw 158. It's like, all right. At what point do I choose to trust right. it and choose not to? And that, I'm sure that goes all the way back to what you talked about and the higher level you have achieved yep. at interpreting and practicing, the less you need it and the more you're going to get out of it. But yeah, it, it leaves user error in there in terms of interpreting it incorrectly or to suit your needs. Yes. Yep. And in theory, power meters are the one thing that can dispel yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, uh, you know, power meters, like, uh, I, I tell you this, like, I would never want to coach a runner who never referenced pace, you know, because like, again, like no trophies are given for the highest power output in, in a race, you know? So like, uh, you know, though I'm a big fan, like, you know, it's like, they're, they're not the be all and end all either. Um, and that can be said for any metric. I have, um, 
Uh, one uh, last thing regarding pacing I wanted to touch on with you before we head on wrapping this up and being respectful of your time. But um, do you in the book or what are your thoughts or theories or indicators or markers uh, if it comes to topography, undulating terrain and trails? Um, I, I assume that a lot of this is flat ground, mostly specific, correct? Um, do you have any tips, tricks, uh, touch points on off-road, off-track pacing that is touched on or um, anything like that? I do. I mean, you know, because pacing is the name of the game in any race you do. I mean, you, you, even obstacles become like part of like, you, you, it's not that you're not pacing anymore. You're just pacing in a, in a different context. So um, yeah, when I talk about getting better at pacing, it's getting better at pacing the competitions you do and if they're like you know um you know it could be like the mount washington hill climber pike's peak well okay that that's a thing uh, you know <laughs> um you wouldn't want to train the same way for you know pike's peak as you would for a, like a track race of the same distance not not that there is one um and and you have to apply you know uh, you know if to me if you're good at pacing then you're good at those transitions, like of you know being able to, uh, you know, know how to pace a track race versus a road race versus a, a, a trail race, and uh, yeah, it's, it's not, but 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 it, there's also some specificity to it, right? Um, so you know, the world's best, you know, pacer on a track who's never run on a trail is not going to be the, the best on the trail. They have potential, uh, but it's just you have to know you know, exactly how it's different and, and then, uh, and then gain that specific preparation. And, and it, it is strategically different as well. Um, you know, um, you know, the thing about with Hills and this is just pure physics, like you can actually, um, uh, because of the nature of physics, like you could sustain a higher average heart rate in a vertical race than you can in any flat race. You can actually work harder <laughs> over the same distance or even duration. I find that out on my incline trainer every week, Matt. Yes. It's incredible. Yes. So what that means is that if you're doing a race that's got up and down, you should not try to sustain a perfectly even effort. Forget about pace. Your effort should not be the same. You should be working harder when you're going up. You shouldn't be working as hard when you're when you're going down. But, you know, the the better pacers, they they it, they um they sort of um they they flatten out better than the terrible pacers who let their efforts spike too much when going up and they coast too much going down. But it's helpful to understand that it's like, Oh, it's okay to burn a few matches going, going up a, you know, a, a hard uh, ascent. So what's the, what's the uh, physiology behind being able to sustain a higher effort going up versus flat? Why, why is that? Because I definitely notice it. Like when I'm riding, I'm doing inclined threshold work. I did one on uh, Monday and my I my heart rate will not get up and stay up if I go do like a tempo run outside. It's just like not sustainable for me for as long. So what what's the physiology behind that? Do you, do you know? Yeah, I mean it, it really is uh, um, more physics than than physiology. Um, you know, it's just um, it's just different. You know, a better an easier way to understand it is like imagine like running down an endless um, you know four percent descent like i think it's easier intuitively to understand that like you you could you just can't you just can't go as hard as you can because like you know gravity is helping you so like 
like you're like I'm trying to run harder, but gravity's pushing you from behind and taking some of the effort away from you. Well, it's doing the opposite when you're going the other way. You're just like it's like combine. It's a little bit like combining a run with weightlifting, and so it's not quite exactly the same thing even anymore. And and, and that is fundamentally why you know you you can you can work harder. Yeah. Well, I just see, I see higher heart rates on incline work than I will on any flat workout I do, yep. even maybe at race effort. It's just, it's very interesting. So the book does speak to just because we have a lot of trail listeners, a lot of obstacle course racing athletes who listen, uh, the book does speak to um, non-road, non-track. It, it will speak to you if you're a mountain runner or or whatever is what I'm kind of yep. getting at. Okay. Yep. And there's also, you know, I touch on the difference between uh, pacing for time and pacing to win. You know, they're, they're not they're not the mm. same thing. Um, so that's, yeah, they're all, I mean, you would think, how can you write an entire book about pacing? But, <laughs> you know, there's a lot to say. <laughs> Matt, I answer, and I'm sure you do, to friends or family members every week, how much is there possibly to talk about writing? <laughs> you know, how do you write another episode? How do you do another? I have lost any doubt that you could take the most <laughs> mundane topic and not be able to create hours of content. So, Agreed. I feel like I'm sold on the book. I was early on, but what what points do you need to get across still for the people who aren't maybe as a little bit more of a hard sell? Yeah, I think you know it's just it. It's you know for me like em- embracing the challenge of getting better at pacing. It's really a it's it's a democratizing opportunity for the sport. Like like you can't change your genes at this point. Like you know if, if you weren't born with the genes required to be the greatest runner. You know, no matter how much you train, you're not going to be the greatest runner. But as I say in the book, like the last place finisher in a race could be the best pacer in the race. Uh, you know what I mean? So like it's a different thing. Uh, so like it, it's just that's why I really see it as kind of the key to mastery. Like, you know, you you can you can master this sport every bit as well as an Olympic gold medalist can. You, can, you can't be as fast, but you you can have. You, you can realize 100% of your te- potential. That's what mastery means. Like it's out there for you, but you're, you're not going to do it. Like if you think, oh, I'm not that serious. Why should I bother uh, getting better at pacing? Well, I mean, it's there for, it's there for the taking. Uh, it's there for you too. And, it can, and it's kind of fun. It, it just, like I said, it, it adds sort of like a, a little bit of a game element to the training process. I like what you said about it doesn't take any extra time. You're already yes. doing the work. Yep. I've done races where they've they've changed the results based on age graded performance. You could change the sport of running or any endurance if you could find a way of accurately judging who got the most yes. out of their potential. Yes. If there was a, a score for that, that would be a fantastic way yeah. of racing. You know, I, I got to go. I got another call in a minute, but I just have to geek out a little bit and say <laughs> I, I I believe that um, that we could see that in our lifetimes um, because it's really like th- there are, there, there are in theory ways of, of measuring uh, brain activation that um, they're like the bullshit detector. It's like, you can say you went a hundred percent, but like, if you, if you, if you do the right kind of brain imaging, it's like, no, you did not. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, you, mm. you, you, it, mm. it could happen. That's the next thing. Forget seeing a heart rate or mile per hour on the side, watching percent of like your toughness score. Who's yeah. deep in the cave? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would be all over that. I mean, it would be abused, of course. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> Strava would never be the same. Yeah. <laughs> where's the best place for Where should people really look to go pick up your book? 
Um, yeah, so it, it's available. Uh, if you want a print copy, the, the, the print book is on Amazon. Uh, the Kindle is, is coming. Um, but um, um, it's sort of like a rolling re release. Um, and then uh, if you go to 8020endurance.com, that's where you can, like, if you're like a, a Google Books person or, or like, you know, a, a Goodreads person, um, that's sort of where you can just sort of see all the options and, and purchase it in the in the form format and at the place you prefer. Okay, and last, you can give me a five second answer. This is a personal curiosity. As an author, does it drive you nuts when people listen to your books on audio, or is it all the same? Is a purist reading the pages, or is listening just as good? I I I love audiobooks, um, just because like it, it's a strong preference for for some people. You know, there are people who will listen to one of my books who would not read one of them. So um, I'm all for it. All right, because that's how I'm going to consume it. In case you're wondering. <laughs> no, no judgment. No, no judgment, Kirk. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back on. Appreciate your time today. It's good catching back up. Yeah, I love talking to you guys. Let's do it again sometime. Yes. Well, I'll write another book. <laughs> <laughs> Holding you to it, Matt. <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Take care, guys. Mm -hmm.